love you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <gasps> I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Are you telling me you built a time machine? Out of a DeLorean? This is... Uh oh. Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> Don't worry, I got an idea. And now, the host of the Stupid Cancer Show, Matthew Sack. Woohoo! Not that there's anything wrong with him. Because he has a lot of chit spot. <laughs> All right. Hello and welcome to episode 390 of the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of young adult cancer. I'm your host. Matthew Zachary, a proud 20-year young adult brain cancer survivor, coming to you from the Chemo Deck, our fabulous studio in downtown Manhattan. Broadcasting since 2007, The Stupid Cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer, the largest charity comprehensively addressing young adult cancer, online at stupidcancer.org. I'm Mallory Rivera, Program Manager and Co-Producer of The Stupid Cancer Show, welcoming our first-time and returning listeners. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the podcast on iTunes and following us on SoundCloud. It is not okay that 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year. So, got cancer? Under 40? Sucks, huh? Well, it's time to get busy living because The Stupid Cancer Show... Is changing the world one chemo infusion at a time. Got a great show, the Fort Worth AYA Oncology Coalition. They recently opened up the very first community supported young adult inpatient unit in the nation. Yes, you heard that right, the first inpatient unit just for young adults. Dr. Karen Altbrin, medical director, and Justin Ozuna, the director of communications and community engagement, will join us to discuss this game-changing unit. Uh, such a unique experience for young adults to go through. Uh, survivor spotlight on young adult Hodgkin's lymphoma survivor, Erica Campbell. Hello, Mallory. Hello. I remember when Justin, um, we're going to talk to him later, Justin used to work for Critical Mass. That's how I met him. And when he left and went to the Fort Worth Coalition, like, Dude, you're building the first young adult clinic. Yeah. It's pretty awesome. It's a big deal. We've been talking about this. We'll, we'll, we'll discuss this with Karen, but we, we were talking about a young adult specific clinic years ago, 10 years ago. What would it take to have, you know, because there is young adult, you know, uh, programs and young adult like uh, survivor programs, but there's no like this door is just for, for you. you. <laughs> yeah. Right. Only for you. Only for you. It, it, was, it was really, really great. Anyway. Uh, I would say that if I had to hashtag that smile on your face, it would be best week ever. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been a week, but the world turned upside down. And uh, it all comes down to Hamilton. It does not just the play. Not not well. It, it started with a lovely event at a uh, Sloan, 
Yeah, we were invited by Sloan Kettering to their annual Survivors uh, Educational Workshop or something like that. Yes, where I got to meet one of my childhood heroes, the fabulous Scott Hamilton. Yeah, who I didn't know had cancer twice. I thought he I knew he had cancer, but twice. Twice. Yes. Um, And then somehow meeting him propelled into me taking uh, what I call daycation. Day yeah. Uh, and... By the weirdest cosmic, I don't even know how or why. I some lovely people gave me their extra Hamilton ticket on the street, and uh, that's like finding plutonium. <laughs> it, it's it's better than winning the lottery. That's yeah, all I have to say. It's amazing. So yeah, yeah so yeah, the Hamilton theme was pervading your best week ever. Yeah, it, it kind of did, and I am more than okay with that. <laughs> so yeah. I mean. I can't even put into words how karmic this was for you, but I, I mean, just for Scott Hamilton, we'll, we'll piece this out. I didn't realize, I'm not, I've known you so long, I didn't know ice skating was a thing for you. It's a thing for me. Uh, my A big thing. My parents put me on ice skates at the age of two, and I competitively skated until I was in, like, fifth grade. Wow. So, it, it's a thing. Yeah, <laughs> Scott Hamilton. I mean, no, no one doubts he's got a great story. His mother died from breast cancer. It's very sad. Yeah. Um, how he, he almost never skated, but he won the scholarship. At the last minute to get paid to skate, yeah. When his mother just couldn't afford to the cost of care, he gave it his all. Amazing story, yeah. amazing story. It was it was really great to hear him speak. Yep. And isn't speaking of Hamilton the musical? Isn't one of the cast members beating cancer or fighting cancer or survived cancer as a young guy? Yes, Javier um, Munez mm-hmm. is currently. Lynn Manuel Miranda's understudy, uh, right. or the, the Sunday Hamilton, mm-hmm. um, and he actually will be taking over for Lynn when Lynn leaves on July 9th. So he actually, well, he was in treatment uh, while he was taking on weekend shows, wow. and uh, Lynn was filling in for him. It was it, <laughs> it was kind of a great story to. We got to get read. him on the show somehow. I mean, yeah, that'll blow bring, your mind. If you want to, if yeah. you want to see me lose my mind, bring yeah. in someone from the cast of Hamilton. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, certainly a great week. And um, there was another story in the Times. I forget which one. It was. Oh, oh, it was how the Brexit is going to affect cancer research funding around the world. Yeah, that's not a good thing. No, not not at all. We're not getting political here, but just like that, there was so much in the European Union's funding to specifically like Macmillan who is leading the world in some research and they're going to lose all that funding now. And yeah, good luck with that. It's going to be, it's what an interesting time we live in. It's amazing. (laughs) How lucky we are to be alive right now. And how great my kids are six and have no idea what's happening. They're just going to roll with the punches. They're just moving on up to first grade. It's amazing. Anyway, that's all we got. Let's, uh, let's go grab Erica. In our spotlight, Erica Campbell is a 31-year-old stage 4 Hodgkin's lymphoma survivor since overcoming her battle with cancer, which she's going to be very happily sharing with us on this segment. She's been sharing her life-changing story as a motivational speaker and cancer advocate. Very excited to welcome Erica Campbell to the show. Erica, so nice to have you. Yes, thank you. So we always like to start off these segments by asking our guests What was their life like a year before their diagnosis? Wow. My life was actually, it was was good. It was great. Um, I just moved into my new home. Um, I was, I just finished uh, my bachelor's program in uh, the criminal justice field. 
And I was just traveling, enjoying life with friends and family. Um, I just, I never imagined a year later I'd have been touched by cancer. Well, that's the backstory. We want to put the back, because like we're, we're young, we're getting our lives in order. This is what you're supposed to be doing. Right. Yep. And then how were you uh, diagnosed? Was it self-exam? Was it pain? Did you go see primary care? Um, actually, uh, in November 2012, uh, I had this ongoing cough, an irritating cough. And I'm like, okay, maybe I just have a cold. It is November. I was taking over the counter meds for about a week, maybe a week and a half. And I was just coughing. I couldn't talk. I couldn't laugh. I couldn't do anything without every few seconds coughing. So I said, you know what? I pay health insurance. Let me get my butt to the doctor's. So I made an appointment. I seen my primary physician, and he said it's just a dry cough. He put me on Robitussin and antibiotics, and like seven days later, I'm still coughing, and there's something wrong. But I didn't even take in the fact that until later on that I was having night sweats, and I uh, I was I was losing weight because I was I was told, hey, you losing weight? What you doing? Like at the time, I wasn't working out, so I'm like nothing. <laughs> so right, exactly. It was just like. Yeah, and he and once I went back to him, he sent me and I received a uh, CAT scan, and it showed that my lymph nodes were in fact enlarged around my lungs, and that's what was causing the cough. Right, because we we hear a lot of stories of lymphoma where like there's just a piece of your neck sticking out the next morning. You have no idea where that came from. That wasn't your case. No, it wasn't my case. Um, everybody's uh, situation is a little bit different. Um, with, with me, like I stated, um, I had the cough, uh, I didn't, and actually, if I look back, I did, uh, say to my doctor before at a physical, when I reach up into my closet to pull down like a pair of jeans, I felt like something rolled under my underarm, but I didn't realize until later on, it was an enlarged lymph node. So mine's pretty much, I, my symptoms was the cough and then everything else followed the night sweats, the ill health fill in and just getting up in the morning was a struggle and trying to take a shower. I couldn't really stand for a long time and it, it, it was just a struggle. So those were my, my ongoing symptoms in the beginning. Well, kudos to you for having the, uh, we say the chutzpah to just take yourself seriously and get yourself to that doctor. And I guess kudos to that doctor for recognizing there was really something wrong with you. Yes, definitely. And I say, if you're paying health insurance, which is very ex- expensive, please go to the doctors and get checked out. Yeah, take advantage of that because you need to. Yes, definitely. So here's a question for you. We Again, in the world of blood cancer, you know, non uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma doesn't have the word cancer in it. When did that word actually get spoken for the first time? Um, Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is a blood cancer, uh, basically uh, it was recognized years ago uh, by Dr. Dr. Hoskins and they, they really don't know. It was like he did, he did his research, but they don't know exactly where it stems from, but it's in, uh, our body's, uh, white blood cells. It's a cancer that starts in our white blood cells that is called lymphocytes and lymphocytes are a part, a part of our body's immune system. So in my case, my lymph nodes became affected and they, uh, became enlarged around my lungs. So, um, Basically, it, it spreads. If you don't get treated right then and there, over time, it spreads. And in my case, mine did spread. It spread into my uh, bone marrow, which put me at a stage four. So right. that is a part of my immune system. So I had to get treated right away. And 
that's where uh, the cancer, I mean, I'm sorry, the chemotherapy took place uh, months later once I was actually diagnosed in March, March 28, 2013. Yeah, and the reason I ask that question is because most people don't equate Hodgkin's lymphoma with the word cancer to begin with because, right. like, oh, I, I've, I'm lymphoma, I'll be all right. No, it's, it's blood cancer. They don't say it that right. way first out of the gate. Right. And, and, and honestly, in the beginning, I didn't know much about it. Um, it's like, okay, what is Hodgkin's lymphoma? What is blood cancer? So, you know, I took the time to actually do my research. And, and once I looked, what actually, what my doctor said is it could be either sarcoidosis or Hodgkin's lymphoma. I'm like, okay, what are both? So when I actually looked into it, I said, like, oh, wow, cancer. You know, and from then it's like, my health really declined because I guess I was stressing out and I was kind of like scared. Well, I was scared. And I didn't know what to expect. So stage four Hodgkin lymphoma. I, I, again, the stories we hear, well, there's no stage five, which means you're going to die. You know, and, right. and then we hear like, oh, you could have prevented this. Or why did you get screened? And you can't do that with blood cancers. No, you can't. You can't. And, you know, and who's to say, and I, and I say this all the time. I say this. I say this to my doctor, my um, oncologist. I'm like, you know, who's to say I wasn't living with this for a year or two years or three years before the symptoms came about? Um, so you don't know. You you really don't know because they're not looking for that in the physical, you know, and, and unless you're coming to them and say, hey, something's wrong. And then they do a CAT scan and then they do a biopsy later on. But you don't know until you have a cough, like in my case. Right. So what? So this is only a couple of years ago. Were you put mm -hmm. on standard of care treatment, the, the usual ABVD? Yes, I did. I did. I had 12, uh, 12 rounds of that uh, ABVD. Actually, I had ABD. I didn't get uh, the, uh, I want to pronounce it right, bleomycin. Right. I didn't, I didn't get that because of my lungs. And I had uh, an infection, and I was having issues with my platelet count, so I had to keep getting transfusion. So I didn't get B, and thank God, with just having ADD, I did survive, and I did uh, go into remission. Where were you treated? Which cancer center? Uh, St. Agnes uh, Cancer Center in Baltimore, Maryland. Were you happy with your care there? Oh, my gosh. Yes, I was. Dr. Miller, Kara Miller, she's the director in the cancer center, and she was also my doctor. And she was, she was, she was wonderful. I mean, it wasn't nothing I could ask her. And, you know, she was always there for me. And being a director, you know, she's over the cancer center. She always made me feel like I was her only patient to this day because I, I had to actually uh, text her and ask her some questions about um, this panel I'm going to sit on on Wednesday. And she always reached out to me and reach, and answer my questions. I love her, and she she helped me survive my fight. I really like to hear those success stories. I I tend to be a little cynical that those are the rare stories, and everyone deserves that type of relationship with their doctor. So congratulations yeah. on on having that happen. The elephant in the room question I always ask our guests when it's <laughs> when it's appropriate is, you know, was fertility risk discussed with you before? your chemotherapy um it was it was uh, it, i asked the questions uh, with my doctor with um uh, my nurse practitioner and i read up on it and it's with with my disease which uh hoskins is very uh highly curable um uh, i didn't have radiation so my doctor explained to me 
uh, been as though I didn't have radiation, my chances to uh, uh, have a uh, curry and to give birth is very high. So I, it, I did worry about that. Like, okay, when I hear cancer and you go through your, your cycles of chemotherapy later on, you're not going to be able to have a baby. So she ensured me that I will, in fact, be able to carry and give birth one day if I choose to. <laughs> right now, I don't have any children, but yeah. Well, you're batting a thousand on this experience. I got to tell you, it's amazing. We just did a, um, uh, a national study of, I think, 600 women who were diagnosed in their fertile years, and only 13% reported being told about fertility uh, risks before the chemotherapy. So you're part of a 13% success rate, which is... Oh, yeah. Which, A, should really piss you off that there's only 13%, but good yeah. that you were one of those. And Yeah, I, I, I ask questions, you know, because I'm like, okay, I'm 27. I want to live to see, you know, 28, 29, 30, and now I'm 31. And, of course, um, you know, women like myself, most women we think about, um, getting married one day and having kids. So that was a question. That was a concern. And even though she assured me that I will be able to give birth one day, um, I still kind of in the back of my head like, wow, will I be able to give birth? So right. I still think about it and kind of get scared at the same time. Right, which then brings up the other issue. We we always joke that it's hard enough being you know 31 when you're not sick. How do you, or you seem like a very confident person, when you're going to date or when you're in a relationship and how do you disclose, by the way, I beat cancer or is that even relevant and where does that play into you just living your life? Oh, my goodness. Now, you need to follow me on social media, my Facebook, my Instagram, my Twitter. I talk about my, my diagnosis. I talk about my fight. I talk about uh, myself overcoming uh, this daily disease um, to be able to give hope to others that uh, affected by this. Uh, disease and uh, cancer as a whole. So I'm not afraid to share that with my significant other or someone that I meet that is new, rather, you know, uh, a new friend, associate. I'm I'm always sharing my story. So I never have fear in doing so. Um, never will. <laughs> well, it clearly speaks to your, your ingrained personality. A lot of people tend to still, even in 2016, in this day of social media, retreat into a shell and not really want to share it or yeah. be embarrassed by it. Uh, you seem naturally predisposed to want to wear it on your sleeve, to be there, to inspire other yeah. people. Is that just how you, you are? That is, a lot of people say that's just my personality. I have a bubbly personality, and that's who I am. I want to uplift. I want to inspire. I want to motivate, you know, individuals that, that patients and their families to just continue to fight because just because the patient is affected, the family is affected as well. You know, my family, my parents, they were at my treatments with me every 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 two weeks. They were sleeping overnight in the hospital with me. So they're just as affected as yourself, as the patient. So I, I want to be that voice, you know, to let them know that you're not alone. You're not walking alone. Did you so, get to meet other young women with cancer during your treatment? Yes. Um, during my treatment, I, well, actually, let me take that back. I only met maybe a few, uh, and I, I mean like a few, a handful, because um, a lot of the individuals that individuals that were in treatment were like seniors. Um, but this young lady, uh, like the, the last three or four rounds, she sat next to me. She was my age, and when I was sharing my story with her, everything I went through with MRSA, shingles, and uh, blood clots and being in a hospital, she was like, looking at me like I was crazy. Like, 
we have the same disease. I didn't go through needle, like nearly none of that. And she didn't have a port. She was getting everything through a pick line. And I'm like, wow. So everyone go through their fight differently. You know, so, and it was good to speak to someone who had a different story than mine. She had the same disease, but she had a different story, a different walk, a different journey. I see here you were written up in Cure uh, recently. Congratulations on that. It's a great publication. Thank you. Did they find you? I, I mean, you seem very published and very vocal. <laughs> yeah, actually, uh, the uh, I'm sorry, I'm trying to, uh, they reached out to me on Twitter. Right. And they were uh, writing up a, a, a article on Hodgkin's disease, and they was trying to find someone uh, like myself, an individual that was uh, recently diagnosed or uh, went through it a few years ago, and write up a story, write up a story on their journey. And they chose me, and I was happy to share my story. And you just celebrated your third National Cancer Survivors Day recently, and what did you do for that day? Yes, actually, I was in Los Angeles. Actually, yeah, I went on vacation to get away, um, and it was amazing just to be able to shine a light and to raise awareness. Even though I was out of town, I still made sure I shined a light on uh, cancer awareness as a whole. Uh, like I said, via my my dot com uh, website, my survival site, and just social media because. We need our communities to come together to hear, to know what's going on uh, with this uh, disease in order to come together and, and eradicate it. So, yeah, it was it was great. It was great to be in L.A. as well. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, who doesn't love L.A. when you don't live there and just travel there? It's like having nieces and nephews. You get to go home at the end of the day. L.A. is in small doses for me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so do you have any siblings or family that were directly involved or, or you know, who may have needed support at the same time? You mentioned it's a family disease. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Uh, yes. My family, my friends, they were very involved. They were very supportive of my journey. Um, actually, I do want to shine a light, put a spotlight on my aunt, Cookie Washington. Um, she actually was fighting uh, her battle with non-Hoskins lymphoma. She was diagnosed a few months before I was. So we battled together, which is my dad's sister. She, so we battled together. We survived our fight. And today her cancer has come back. So I definitely want to be, you know, her, her support, her, uh, you know, to be in her corner at this time because it's tough for her right now to know that your cancer has come back into your life and then you have to fight all over again. But my family, we fight together. We, we support her. We support each other. So she don't have to fight this again um, and be alone. So, yeah. Well, our hearts go out to your aunt for sure. We got about a minute or two left. I was hoping you could tell us more about your new company, Desire to Survive. Yes, Desire to Survive uh, is a cancer advocacy and support group. Um, with myself and my team, we just want to be able to uplift, to support, and to, like I said, motivate patients and their families to continue to fight um, during this time. Uh, recently in September, I released my Desire to Survive inspirational journal line, and which you can find on desiretosurvive.org. And uh, with these journals, I want to be able to, I want you to be able to write about what your journey is like. You know, sometimes we don't verbally want to speak about it. We want to have a personal outlet. And these journals is for you to write, to draw, if you're an artist, to put pictures in your journals, just to go through your journey with a smile on your face to know that you are fighting. 
you are going to survive. So that's where I came up with Desire to Survive because we all have a desire to survive something in our life. We've been speaking with Erica Campbell, 31-year-old, uh, who was a, I just celebrated her three-year cancerversary of stage four Hodgkin lymphoma. She is on Twitter at Erica Survived and ericasurvived.com. And I love the Facebook.com slash Beat Cancer's Butt. Yes. <laughs> thank you. So Always for, and forever. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. I look forward to meeting you one day. We're, we're neighbors. Yes. Yes, sir. Yeah, I got to come up. Yeah. Come up and visit the Big Apple. <laughs> you, you got it. Well, it's, we're better than L.A., so there you go. Uh-oh. Okay. <laughs> whoop, whoop. Starting to fight. Starting to fight. Okay. You take care. Good luck. Take care. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Erica Campbell, everyone. Okay, Mal, and now the news. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is Eye on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. Head on over to events.stupidcancer.org. That's events.stupidcancer.org. Sign up for meetup alerts and never miss a meetup again. If you'd like to learn more about hosting your own Stupid Cancer Meetup, visit stupidcancer.org slash meetup. Okay, there are meetups happening in Cherry Hill, San Diego, and Phoenix. Fantastic. No one should face cancer alone because isolation sucks. Now you can get instant anonymous peer support on your mobile device with Instapeer, our free mobile app for iOS and Android devices. Create your account and instantly start privately messaging with fellow patients, survivors, and caregivers who've been there and walked in your shoes. So join our mobile community of thousands right now on your mobile device, Instapeer. We've launched a newsfeed aggregator on Tumblr for all the articles, blogs, and stories we couldn't possibly have the time to post on social media. Check out what we're reading 24-7 and don't miss a beat. Subscribe at stupidcancer.org slash feed. If you've not yet checked out the Stupid Cancer Community Forums, you're missing out. Join thousands of your peers in a safe and meaningful online environment to get connected, swap stories, learn from one another, and foster the young adult cancer conversation. With hundreds of topics, discussion groups, and issues to, to choose from, it's a great place to get busy living. Learn more at stupidcancer.org slash community. Support our programs and services by heading over to stupidcancerstore.org. You'll feel great and look great in your new Stupid Cancer gear. That's stupidcancerstore.org. Be proud. Wear Stupid Cancer. And that is your Stupid Cancer News. All right, we got our main segment here, the Fort Worth AOA Oncology Coalition. Joining us, Dr. Karen Albritton has been a champion of the AOA cancer movement forever since I got started, before I got started. She's the real deal. In 2005, she was part of the Pivotal Progress Review Group that resulted in the national consensus on five key areas for improving the outcomes of young adults with cancer and help give birth to the young adult cancer movement and critical mass. Joining her, Justin Ozuna, young adult survivor, provides communications and PR expertise to the coalition. He was introduced to the AOA Ecology uh, world as the critical mass social media dude and is now taking all that great stuff to the Fort Worth AOA Oncology Coalition. Please welcome Justin Ozuna and my old friend, Karen Oliverin. Hello. Hey, Matt. I am, wow, that's enthusiasm. I am so excited for this particular show because I have very proudly been a part of the genesis to get to this moment. And it's, Absolutely. it's so 
exciting in a way that no one really understands unless you were there in 2006 when all those reports came out and we were crunching our brains and figuring out what to do with ourselves. And look at that. Things happen. Eventually. It's water <laughs> over stone sometimes. Yeah, but. no, I agree. Uh, Karen, we first met when you were at Dana-Farber many, many years ago, and you were one of the original pioneers of all this data, all this science, with what I call the breakfast club of you know Archie Blyer and Lenny Sender and, and, and Stu Siegel and Stu Kaplan and, and um, you know all the names that many, many people listening may or may not know. But there was such a force of talent and intellect all those years ago. And and I think back then it really was, we were sort of scratching our heads going, I know something's wrong. I don't know how to operationalize it. And we would try to tell our colleagues who didn't treat this patient population, trust me, they're just different. And trust me, they just need a different environment or a different set of hands, um, you know, a different set of brains dealing with them. And it was hard to describe and it was hard to um, operationalize. And so to see the progress in many different ways um, on how we've been able to operationalize and um, legitimize and um, come up with something other than a virtual reality is really fun. And and it is the uh, the 10th anniversary year of the PRG, 2006, correct? Oh, yeah, that makes me feel old, but yeah. <laughs> Well, what does that make me feel? I feel old, too. It's good. It's good getting old, though, right? We work in cancer. Getting old is a blessing. Wise, as my children like to say. Mom, you're looking quite wise today. <laughs> I'll take wise over old any day of the week. Wow. So this is a big deal. Um, what got you into, because uh, you had left Dana-Farber and went to Cook, and now you're heading up this program. Tell us about those uh, that transition. Yeah. So, um, cook has been great when I joined them, I said, um, you know, I'm looking forward to coming back to Texas. That's where I'm from. And Fort Worth is a great community. They have a wonderful pediatric hospital. Um, but I know that there are young adults out there in the community and I'm, I know that they're probably not getting AYA care. Um, will you, basically support me financially to spend some of my time out in the community um, building the resources for them. And Cook very graciously agreed to do that. You know, they um, had been seeing the 24-year-old with Ewing sarcoma, the um, 23-year-old with ALL, and knowing that they weren't going to let that patient not get appropriate care, but also knew that in many cases, they weren't the right place for that care. And, you know, all the typical stories, you know, the patient who has a young child and the nurse walks in the room and thinks that the two-year-old is the patient instead of the parent. You know, all those types of reasons that a pediatric hospital may not be the best place. That's my story, so by they, the way. My, my story, they, yeah. thought, they thought that I was the parent of a patient at Sloan Kettering 20 years ago. <laughs> and so it, it, it's a, you know, you just... You can build it at a pediatric hospital. I just wasn't convinced that that was the right answer. So they said, we will support you finding the right answer for these patients out in the community. So it's a cute story, but it actually was a dinner. We, I um, got a, an invite list together of all the people, um, all of the places that touched um, 
cancer patients in town um, and might be touching AYA patients and would have something to say. And we had a roundtable dinner, brought a couple AYAs in to tell their stories, and just really had a great conversation about what is it like to take care of AYAs in this community? Do you feel like you have all your resources that you need? Do you feel like we're giving the very best care? If not, why not? What do you need? What would that look like? And then ended it by saying, do you want to keep having these conversations? And so we started a task force. And now five years later, we have a nonprofit coalition with all sorts of legal mumbo jumbo and bylaws and, you know, (laughs) structures and board of directors and, uh, and a unit. And we have an inpatient unit. It's, it's, I mean, for, it, it may not sound like much to the average person because they live outside the bubble, but in our world, in the real cancer world, this is a really, really big deal. And going over to Justin, I remember when this hit Facebook, Facebook exploded when we were framing it as there's a hospital just for us. And like half a million people read the article and then like, oh, wait, Justin is running all the social for it. I know that guy. And it was such a, you know, waiting, serendipitous, waiting to happen, um, mishpacha thing. And I want to get you uh, talking about your story. CML at 24 years old, I met you through Critical Mass in Austin. Um, you got a hell of a story, bro. Yeah, you know, you're, we were talking about 2006, and, and that's the year I, I was diagnosed. And uh, I remember I was in a small town of 100,000 people, and I went to this community oncology center, and it's a typical story. I walk in, and I felt like the pizza delivery boy at, a, at an old person's home. You know, <laughs> there were couples and and uh, old women and old magazines, and then there was me. And this is a time where, uh, when you had like Snake on your phone, you didn't have all these cool apps to look at or anything like that. And so those magazines were kind of a big deal. And um, <clears throat> you know, over the course of time, you it was it was difficult to to live with a chronic illness uh in in that type of environment um i didn't know anybody my age with cancer for 3 years believe it or not it wasn't until i went to a um uh, a pharmaceutical round table where i i met another cmler who was even close to my age and and it's a, it's just a typical aya story and uh you know i had to drop out of school three different times because of relapse or my medication uh, wasn't working or I had to be a part of a clinical trial. Um, I prepped for a bone marrow transplant, went to numerous institutions, uh, and finally got back into school and, um, and uh, graduated. But it was, uh, it was a long process, and, and critical mass was kind of the, um, the eye-opener for me. I, it, it first introduced me to, to a new world of uh, AYA cancer and, and the people that are that are in it, and it's just been amazing. And the original CEO of Critical Mass is Heidi Adams, who was herself a young adult cancer survivor with Ewing sarcoma, who was uh, one of our, one of our dear friends, but also one of my earlier mentors. I remember at the very first Livestrong Alliance meeting in 2006, she got up and said something along the lines of how young adult cancer isn't better or worse than anyone else's. It's just very different, and that's our message to the public. And everything you're sharing is the young adult story. It's hard enough to be 26 when you're well, let alone going through all this stuff. And I, I say stuff with love, but it's clearly more than stuff. Um, what did it mean to you to be part of Critical Mass and its genesis and its 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 uh, its massive growth? You know, it was uh, it was just awesome. <clears throat> 
to experience it kind of from the the ground floor. You know, um, I w- I didn't go as far back as uh, Dr. Albert did, or or you even. Um, but I met Heidi at a young adult conference here. Um, I think it was in 2011 or something like that. And I, I said, you know, I, I, here I do the social media thing, you know, uh, I'd love to help out. And she said, yeah, sure, come on. And, uh, and I kind of learned as I went and, and started building Critical Mass from the ground up, the digital platform, and, um, and, and started engaging with people from across the country going to these conferences. And I knew that, that it was something that I wanted to do. I, you know, I, I would go to pharmaceutical companies and, and talk about my story, and, and they would ask, you know, how can we reach more young adults? And I was, it always blew me away. I figured that they should have the answers, you know, that the doctors should have the answers, that, um, you know, the, the nurses should have, everybody should have the answers, and it seemed like nobody did. And, um, and so it was always something that uh, I didn't even realize as an AYA patient that my story was kind of the typical AYA story. And so the the ability to, to work uh, in an environment, in a community, um, you know, like Critical Mass and, and now the Fort Worth uh, Adolescent and Young Adult Oncology Coalition, uh, you know, it's just, it's, I don't want to say a dream come true because I would never dream to have cancer, but, you know, I've always wanted to make the best of every situation. And, and you know, if I can share my experiences and, you know, whether it be with, uh, you know, the medical community here or an AYA or who's kind of struggling with, with their di- diagnosis. And, you know, that's uh, just an amazing thing. Karen, I hope you would comment on something Justin just said about how you, he wished doctors would have all the answers. And it's obviously a very nuanced question that can be addressed from many different ways. But since there's no young adult specialty per se, it's pediatrics and everyone else, how has it been for you and your your peers in the on the on the academic side building standards of care or is it easier to train pediatric oncologists to scale up or have you met with any mm. you know success training existing oncologists in general and then kind of like towing them down a bit by age mhm i i think um <laughs> sort of like just when you deal like when you deal with an AYA, you have to meet them when they're where they're at. I think it's really the same. Um, so many people are coming to AYA ecology from so many different angles. I mean, both you and Justin came to it um, as survivors and have so much to add because of that passion. And a lot of times, the um, staff providers come um, to it likewise because of a passion after dealing with a patient. So, the, or a personal story, you know, um, there truly are a lot of people going into nursing and psychology and um, uh, child life. Uh, literally, I've just can, thought of three people on my team right now who came to their current field because of an experience either themselves as a survivor or a family member with a survivor and as an AYA. And that then drove them to a passion to learn more about this population. So it's sort of wherever they come from, you can then get them to the expertise. If you come in with a passion and you want to take care of this population, you can train anybody regardless of their background. It's the people who don't have a a story or a person to relate to yet that is hard either way. I mean, it's very hard to take a pediatric oncologist or a medical oncologist who (laughs) 
I like to say, doesn't get a button. I mean, they don't get it. They don't, they don't have a story or a face or a personal experience. Right. You kind of have to be, you have to have, have already swum in the pool to really understand, you know, how to deal with the swimmers. Exactly. So let's talk about the center itself then. I, I, I'm getting, Justin, I have an indirect question based on this question. Um, because there have been many uh, institutions that, that are talking about they have a young adult program or a young adult center or a young adult door. <laughs> uh, how is this different and so uh, transformational, what you've built here? Is this for me? Yeah. Oh, so so this is different because this is a physical space. You know, so many times you would – I've been to a number of institutions where we talk about AYA programs, and they're supposed to have one. But nobody ever makes a touch point, you know, because I'm either in and out or, um, you know, I don't meet the right person or maybe I met the right person and I met 10 people after them, so I didn't, uh, I didn't really know about it. This gives – our community, a, a place, a foundation, kind of a home, um, you know, a hub for this AYA care and, and connection, you know, and from that, we are influencing community in a number of different ways from education, from, you know, really, um, you know, experiencing kind of the environment. We, we, we had uh, numerous open houses before our grand opening and you should have seen the eyes as people walked in and, and saw how different our unit was compared to, you know, a, a, the rest of the hospital or hospitals that they've seen or work in. So, it's just uh, such a unique place to um, to serve a population and really bring people together. As you know, this is, you know, a, the AYA cancer has been difficult to, to gain any momentum because we're all, young adults are spread out throughout the healthcare system. And, you know, they get treated, they go home and they move on. Well, you know, five years down the road, 10 years down the road when they're struggling or going through bankruptcy because they couldn't afford their uh, their medical treatment or follow-up care, uh, they're long gone. They've kind of fallen through the cracks. And so what this unit gives us the opportunity to, to catch those patients um, kind of on the front side and, and walk them through that cancer journey and, and, um, and you know, hold their hand more, uh, you know, so to speak. So, Karen, help me paint this picture uh, you're diagnosed with cancer between age X and age X, and you physically walk into a specific ward of the clinic, and you're going to be visually seeing other people in treatment that are your age, roughly. Right. I, I think it's just, it, it's huge that, that Justin's story is true, you know, and so many other patients have told me the same anecdotes. I didn't know there was anyone else my own age. One of the things that's unique is um center is that it is both inpatient rooms and infusion rooms. You know, we had this aha moment when we realized that one of the um, problems is that you may run into somebody as an inpatient and then um, not see them again because your dates of inpatient stays or don't overlap again. Um, vice versa, in the infusion room, you know, you may get this glimpse of someone else your own age and want to introduce themselves yourself but not see them again so we've increased the statistical opportunity of seeing another young adult your same age by having them in the same physical space um, and it clearly is a young adult space I mean we have a pool table and a um, we have a, um, a record player and we have a, um, a foosball table and, and a big screen TV I mean everything really says this is a young adult space 
I mean, I remember having conversations with with either Dr. Stu Siegel or Dr. Lenny Sender. Like, where is the Starbucks for cancer concept yeah. in the hospital? And it sounds like you guys have kind of cracked that code a bit. That was our goal. And we really got a lot of young adults at the table and just went laboriously over what are we missing? What would make this feel like your space? What do you dislike about the other spaces? Um, what color scheme do you like? Um, you know, physical layout. We really asked them so many questions to make sure we were getting it right. So, Justin, what's been the feedback so far? I mean, I'm, uh, intake must be very different than, you know, when you... I feel like you should ask them, are you threatened by this? Is this super cool right now? Is it like Barnes & Noble for chemotherapy? You know, t tell us more. Yeah, I mean, just the response has been amazing. I think the response from our community, the response from the AYAs in particular, the response of the people, the, the staff that work there. Um, we've had so many young adults come through our unit uh, um, since, our, since we opened a month ago, you know, and they just talked about, they thank us for, you know, putting this thing together and, and for building this space. Um, we just had recently <clears throat> had a... Um, a, uh, a young young lady um, who's been in an older hospital setting before, and, and she said, you know, this is just amazing. Like, this space is amazing. Um, I, you know, I love it here. And, you know, those are the type of responses that, that we love to hear. You know, it's, it's, it's the little things like that that I think make all the difference in the world. I, at um, my community center, I would go to my doctor's office, and I couldn't wait to leave. You know, I, I remember him sitting, sitting down one time after, um, you know, a typical case of non-adherence. I couldn't afford my medication. I didn't have anybody to talk to, blah, blah, blah. Um, and he asked me, he looked me in the eye and said, well, what do we need to do? And I sat there for a second and thought about it. And I was like, what do you mean? I'm, I'm the patient. I, I have no idea what we need to do because you don't know what you don't know. And right. this environment gives patients, you know, and the families, even and their friends, um, a place to understand where they, what they don't know, you know, to have the resources uh, made available to them. And, um, you know, that's just an amazing thing. You know, it's, it's something that you don't think about. It's kind of like going to like a really swanky hotel and being like, wow, I had no idea this existed. You know, this is, it's like the Vegas of, of, uh, hospital settings, you know, it's, uh, it's really, it's really unique, and um, you know the the kids just love it, I despite often, their tough circumstances. No, and I I often quote Steve Jobs when he said when they when they do the iPod when like what is this nonsense going on? He said, "Don't give people what they want; give them what they don't know they need." And it's clear that this is the epitome of that that quote. Uh, Karen, you mentioned something very intriguing for me personally and professionally that you've sort of reduced the statistical risk of being isolated by walking into a room with other patients your age. Is it safe to say that there are, like, the um, the National Comprehensive Cancer Network has young adult guidelines that we discovered are only followed, like, 20% of the time based on national surveys and studies and polls on our end. Is it safe to say they're being followed <laughs> in the young adult program? Right. right. I think when we're fully operational, yes. I mean, I want to stress that we are um, just, been open, what are we at, like five weeks or something now, and we are not even fully staffed yet. We are um, 
the, the full outfit will include an AYA navigator, psychologist, social worker, and a quote-unquote child life specialist. It'll really be more an activity coordinator for the young adults. And we have people sort of filling some of those roles um, in a crossover way and, and until we have dedicated the funding for truly dedicated staff. And I think when it's fully operational, yes, absolutely, 100%. But I want to stress that we are very much aware of our um, that we are breaking ground and, and um, we need to serve as a learning um, opportunity for many other places. So we are putting a lot of effort into documenting both our successes and our mistakes and what works, what doesn't work. Um, you know, how many standards are we following? How hard is it to follow those standards? How much does it cost to follow those standards? Exactly. Um, we we want to keep pushing the needle forward. Yeah, I mean, it, that to me is, A, you're aware of it. You're, you're building something from scratch that you're aware of the the challenges that other communities face by not having these things because they don't think about them. You're coming in preloaded with what you know you need to think about so that you know more than 13% of women will be told about sterility risk from chemo, which is what the stats are these days based on our research, which is terrible. If you guys can come back in a year and say, you know what, 100% or 90% of our women, even our men, I don't know, Justin, if you had were told to bank your sperm, I wasn't, is, is to, you know, everyone that walks into this young adult unit is made aware of fertility rights, period. That's a big deal. That's some social media PR right there. Right. Absolutely. So, all right, so you're five weeks old. You're, you're building everything up. Justin, what is the social media strategy these days, and how can other young adults out there who wished they had this clinic when they were diagnosed, like myself at this point, what can we do to help you guys spread the word? Yeah, I think awareness is the number one thing. You know, we, as as you know, Facebook kind of uh, limits you on, on exposure and and, uh, and all of that. So, you know, just getting the word out is is key to key for us in connecting other AYA survivors as they come, as they um, go. Um, you know, survivors in the community that you know are, are wanting to give back in some type of way, wanting to to provide mentorship or um, or volunteer their hours. You know, I think just creating that awareness for our Facebook page and, and Twitter in general is kind of step number one. Um, and then it's the stories that we're able to tell. That That's kind of the, the next level. Um, you know, those stories are going to be powerful. They're going to be rich, um, and they're really going to tell kind of the AYA perspective. And, and I'm excited to get to that point, um, you know, so that we can kind of expand on that you know, it's, it's more than just a unit, you know, it's more than just a space. It's really the, the, um, the ancillary services that we're able to provide, you know, the, the expertise, the, the AYA care, um, AYA resources and age relevant resources at that. So it's, um, you know, that's kind of the, the next step and, and that's what I look forward to, uh, to sharing. No, it, it is and it's, con a, and it's concentric circles. You know, this is just a six bed unit, you know, we, the, the, all of the stuff that, is going to change. It's not going to happen just because of those six beds. It's going to be because of, you know, the outpatients who hear about our website and our support groups and stuff like that. But quite frankly, you know, the, for the person in Colorado, they're not going to, or Idaho or whatever, they're not going to come to our unit. But if I can, if our experience and our hopefully success can inspire them to go to their local 
hospital and say, how come we can't do this? Um, then that's where we are really making movement shifts. You know, it's it, we have to go community by community and say, you can build a community AYA program. It, it's not undoable. They did it. Yeah, and my inner research nerd, which I don't really have one, but if I did, my inner research nerd would say, if you're able to really quantify that there are improved outcomes and you're moving the needle on the original progress review group report about five-year survival, everyone's going to need to mimic that because they're going to have better patients and better outcomes. Yep. It's a really big deal. And it will take a while for us to get the survival outcome um, differences, but it will not take us that long for us to get the differences in fertility preservation, education, support, um, coping skills, um, a sense of hope even in these patients, you know, and, and a decrease in isolation and depression scales and depression, antidepressant use and things like that. We're going to be collecting all of that because we realize that those are the intermediate outcomes that are, people are going to be wanting. Yeah, and we're right behind you on that one. Survivorship outcomes, quality of life outcomes, those are, that's the new cancer research for me. And a major focus of how can we do what we can on the advocate side that isn't necessarily, you know, uh, needles and, and prescriptions. Yep. So uh, we've been talking with Dr. Karen Albritton, medical director of the Fort Worth AYA Oncology Coalition and uh, the Cook Children's AYA Oncology Program, and Justin Ozuna, who's the director of communications and community engagement for the Fort Worth AYA Oncology. Lots of syllables here. Coalition. Uh, what can we... Um, uh, where can we learn more? What's the hashtag? What's the Twitter handle? Um, I, I, I mean, I'm this. Like I said, we started the segment with. It's been ten years that we've been aspiring <laughs> to accomplish this. Let's not lose sight of the fact that this is a real thing in ten years, and we did it. I mean, whatever it is at this point is something very aspirational that we can put our finger on. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we can, anybody can follow the conversation of, of uh, our organization or coalition at uh, facebook.com slash F-W-A-Y-A-O-C and at F-W-A-Y-A-O-C on Twitter or hashtag F-W-A-Y-A. A lot of, uh, a lot of acronyms there. Yes. Well, but, um, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is, you know, this is an opportunity not only, not only for us to, to kind of learn our way uh, forward, but for everybody to kind of see what we're doing and, and see what they're doing. You know, this is, you know, coming from critical mass, I, I, I know and have experienced, you know, a community of people all across the country who are trying to do the same thing, essentially, in, in a number of different ways because of, uh, you know, their institution or, or their city or, or, you know, whatever. But, you know, I think, we can all learn from each other and we can continue to kind of move that needle forward as, as Dr. Albert said, um, to make more noise and create more awareness for, you know, AYs with cancer. Yeah. And final word, Karen, you know, we live in a thankless world, but I really want to thank you for putting in the, the, the hard work you and your peers in, 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 on that side of the fence, remarkable, inspiring, incredible stuff. Thank you. Well, thank you. And back at you, you know, you've been in it just as long and you had cancer at the beginning. So <laughs> kudos on the double hit. Well, thank you guys for joining us again. Uh, Karen Albright, medical director at the Fort Worth AYA Oncology Coalition and Justin Ozina, young adult survivor of CML, the director of communications and community engagement at the same Fort Worth AYA Oncology Coalition. Thank you for joining us. Have a great time. Bye bye. Thanks, thank Matt. You so much.
All right, and now it's time for our closing sequence. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. You ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. Okay, folks, that's our show, the 390th episode of The Stupid Cancer Show. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the podcast on iTunes and following us on SoundCloud. I'd like to thank our guests, Erica Campbell and Dr. Karen Altman and Justin Ozuna from the uh, Fort Worth Adolescent and Young Adult uh, Oncology Coalition. Broadcasting since 2007, The Stupid Cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer, the largest charity comprehensively addressing young adult cancer online at stupidcancer.org. Coming to you from the chemo deck, and on behalf of my team are at The Stupid Cancer Show, we have you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at Stupid Cancer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you right back here on the next exciting podcast of The Stupid Cancer Show. Goodbye, folks.